Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Join Hoda Kotfi for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now. Thank you so much. Called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com and definitely check out those shows as well. Caitlin Vasey is the author of A Blind Corner. This is one of our guest-hosted episodes by Juliana Goldman. Caitlin is the author of Mrs., and she was actually on this podcast for that book, so you can go back and listen to that, The Fundamentals of Play, and Spoiled the recipient of an O. Henry Award. Macy's work has been published in The New Yorker and The New York Times Magazine, among other publications. She lives in New York City with her husband and two children. Caitlin Macy, author of A Blind Corner, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. A Blind Corner, stories about good intentions that can go horribly wrong. Tell us about it. My agent and I came up with that tagline because I think many of the stories are about a situation where someone really does have, you know, the best intentions, like they are trying to do good, or at least if not, you know, it's if, if not overtly trying to do good, they're at least, you know, trying to conduct their life in a respectful way, but because of their preconceived notions or their biases or what have you, you know, and their social emotional makeup, they sort of end up tripping themselves up, biting off their noses despite their face, digging their own graves, <laughs> all that. So that's why we sort of thought that made sense as, as something. I mean, the stories, it's, there are a range of stories, as, as you probably saw, but um, that that sort of encapsulated a lot of it. So One of the things I loved about it was after reading it, there were certain stories or like vignettes that really stayed with me that I would wake up thinking about, <laughs> which I think is like the hallmark of a great 
great book and great, great writing. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that because I agree. And I, and I also find it funny as a reader and a moviegoer and so on, the things that do stay with one, because it's often not what you'd expect. It's sometimes something you're thinking about some strange comedy that you watched because nothing else was on TV one night, 20 years later. So I'm glad that I'm glad that you're finding that they stick a bit. How did you come up with the concept? Like where, where did it come from both in terms of the, the content, but also the idea of writing it as short stories? Yeah. So my stuff in general tends to start with a nugget of the truth of some, some actual thing that either happened or that I observe. And then I sort of push it, push it, push it to the, to the limit. Um, so Many of the stories had some little incident, not exactly as told in the story, but some little incident that then um, I thought, oh my, imagine if if that really went all the way, that problematic interaction or something like that. And in terms of doing stories, so it's funny, I know I've, I've done a little bit of stuff out in Hollywood and I you know, sometimes when you're out there, somebody will say, you know, if you've got a screenplay, they'll say, well, why didn't you write this as a novel? Or if you've got you know, a novel, why isn't it a script or stories? I, I tend to think of things in, in in totally discrete genres. So for me, if it's a story, it's a story. And it's not as if I'm sort of, there's one story in the book that I could see developing further, but most of the stories, like they're done at, at 15, 20, 25 pages. So I think that's because usually with a story, you know, there's a certain moment, a revelation, a turn. And whereas with an, you know, in a novel, you really really live in a novel you, you you know you get to know everything about the people and it's just a to me it's a totally different endeavor so I had written a couple stories and then it just came down to contractually I owed Little Brown a book because I had, <laughs> had two book contracts and I and I emailed my editor thinking that she'd she'd sort of say no because I technically owed them a novel and I said, you know, I'm really not feeling it right now with a novel, but I've got these stories that are burning a hole in my pocket that I've, it almost began to seem as if, you know, I just need to write these down as opposed to, I need to sit down and create a story. I said, okay, I've got all the stories. I just have to get them down. I got to get them written. And my editor at Little Brown, Judy Plain was incredibly nice and gracious and said, yeah, if you always write stories. So that's sort of, that was sort of the germination of doing a collection. And over what period of time did you write it? Were you writing during COVID? Were you writing them all together? Were some written years ago? Like, tell us how it, how that part came together. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in a word, yes. You know, there's one or two stories in there that I worked on forever off and on and sort of would massage slightly and and revisit a year later. Because the nice thing about a story collection is that if you don't have the collection ready, but let's say you have a couple individual stories, why not revisit them? If you haven't published them, you can can see if they're making sense to you. And I, I love to let something rest for a minute and then look at it later because I'm somebody who revises a ton. So I always feel coming to it with a fresh eye is, is, is revelatory because you can sort of see, oh, it's, it's nearly there, but I've got to do X, Y, and Z. But to your other point, I, in the main, it was a COVID book. So it was funny because we were, you know, the whole family was obviously camping out together. And so it was kind of chaotic in its way, but somehow escaping to my bedroom and just, and just working on this worked somehow, I, I think. And so I kind of pushed it along during COVID and then I ended up cutting one of the stories that I didn't like enough to include. And, and I think sort of 
In terms of getting there, there were just a couple that were written very quickly and they were a lot, you know, to my mind, they were, they were very straightforward once I sort of knew where I was going with the collection. Whereas when I was just, you know, several years ago, when I was starting one of the stories, I remember just having no idea where I was headed and just, oh, I'll see, I've got this germ of an idea. I'll see where it takes me. In one of the stories, you know, and going back to the point about certain vignettes or, or lines sticking with you in Nude House. I love the line where um, Susanna, she's in, in college at the Women's Center, and you write that it was an attempt at finding herself so misguided it could still make her wince 20 years later. <laughs> I loved it. It was so relatable. You know, you think back to all these times in college where, I don't know, you just have a sort of an, like just an outside sense of yourself, of, of certain things being important or significant and going like her, the image of her sitting in there and thinking that this was her her space. <laughs> I love that. Who doesn't have the things that you could wince about 20 years later? Yeah, obviously that line is a, a sort of moment in the story where, right, I, I leap forward a couple decades, which I always think is interesting to do. You know, she the character is, is, is a person who, for whom going to college is this huge, exciting thing. And then, you know, she like many sort of naive people, you know, gets to college and just makes makes mistakes and is confused. And, and then I think the cringeworthy moments are always the ones that are are worth drilling down on. Yeah. <laughs> because why, why is it cringeworthy? For someone else, it wouldn't be, right? So it's that's that's really your psychological or the character's psychological makeup. What was the real life story that inspired that story? Like what was the the thread that kind of pushed you to want to explore what could happen if. It's funny, that story is one of the ones that that I wrote for a long time and got longer, it got shorter, and then it, it finally reached its 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 um the version that appeared in the collection. And it was a story I wanted to write about someone who, you know, is this sort of goody two-shoes, she's kind of a goody two-shoes grade cover, et cetera. I was thinking about, I don't exactly remember why, but I was thinking about how for some adolescents, and you see this in, in every generation, but some adolescents just sort of, in, instead of rebelling traditional style and, you know, throwing kegger bonfires in the backyard, they almost double down and, and, and get, you know, closer to their parents and they're sort of, you know, staying home and going to the museums with their parents and so on. At the same time, I think at some point, adolescence will out. So at some point they are going to go through adolescence, whether their parents know about it, whether they are, you know, the setting may, it may be later, maybe earlier, the setting could be different. So sort of thinking about what happens to someone like that when, you know, all the other kids her peer group are out partying and, you know, having sex and so on. And she's sort of doing her goody tissues thing. Um, and then, the sort of coda and the title and nude hose and everything that is a germ that's from real life, which is that, so I had gone to boarding school. And then when I got to college, my friends were a little bit artsier. And I had this one friend, a really, really significant friend, like that friend from freshman year that you sort of meet all your other friends through. And I remember one day she said to me, I don't remember if I was actually wearing stockings or not. I may well have been, I think we were talking about like other fashion, but basically she made the point that everyone wears black tights and black shoes. And, and I, I sort of thought, oh, right. And then for the, you know, the next four years, I was in black tights. But 
So, you know, it was one of those tiny little things. But for me, I certainly never wore black tights at boarding school. I was in, you know, I think we had, we had a little bit of a uniform and I was in, for lack of a better word, preppier stuff. And then I, I got to college and I was kind of like, all right, new uniform. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I was thinking about how those little things can, you know, I, I can't put on a pair of black tights without thinking of my friend, Anna. <laughs> so she, it was just that, that transitional moment showing up freshman year mm-hmm. and thinking, oh, college could open up a whole new world if, if you could kind of get it right. <laughs> I like um, you tweeted out TFW when your parents' friends say they can't wait to read your new book and you smile brightly thinking, as long as no one mentions the sex, we're good. And for for the record, I had to Google TFW. So I'm like pretty out of it, but (laughs) that feeling when for people who don't know. Yeah, I probably figured that out about a week before. Yeah, I'm I'm very... my, my kids make a lot of fun of me for being so out of it. So. <laughs> Which story was that referring to? Is there a specific one? Yeah, well, no, just in general. I mean, this book has, you know, sex in it. It has sexual assault. It has, you know, the kind of runs the gamut. And so, you know, there is that funny way where you realize as your parents age, you know, you can't sit around kind of like thinking that you'll really start writing once, you know, they're gone. So you have to just write what you're compelled to write. But it is always funny when, you know, you think, oh, you're, you know, your mother, my mother will say, who's so good at promoting my books? And so she'll say, oh, Blah's book. And you're thinking, what's that emoji with the hand covering the face? <laughs> you know, you're thinking, oh, God, here we go. Because there is something sort of, I mean, writers put down on paper, right? We all have had experiences, obviously, you know, as my sister and I used to joke, like, we each have two kids. That means, you know, <laughs> we've done it at least twice. So, but we have all these experiences, but it is, there's something about it that when the older Jen is, is going to confront it and read it, I still feel a little bit <laughs> sheepish about it. Uh-huh. Um, and I have to kind of, you know, just skirt my teeth and, and, and do it anyway. <laughs> I love it. Do your parents ever say anything about the sex? in your pieces and your writing? Well, it's funny because apparently my, my dad was reading the book and apparently he said to my sister or something like a lot of sex in it. <laughs> <laughs> and so she just, she just did the monitor, you know, the one note sort of, yep, <laughs> let's not, let's not go there. It sounds like you're close to your sister. Do you ever bring that relationship into your writing? Very, very close. Yeah, we have. I have one sibling. We're a year apart. I do. I mean, I've I love to write a proper sister novel. I think a lot about sister novels. My favorite sister novels. I, th- um, you know, I'd love to join that canon of sister novels. I've got a couple a couple stories in my old collection, spoiled, that are are obviously about sisters. I also sort of, you know, insider insider point. She, my sister, lives in Tuscany. So, uh, and has always lived in Europe for pretty much her entire adult life. So I've had, I've been lucky enough to have sort of insider access to Europe, which has been just really profound for my writing. So while, while, you know, the Italian story in this book, it's not about my sister in any way, but, but, you know, certainly being in Italy in an, in an up close way where I could really observe the differences and not, and not going as a tourist. Um, she also lived in France, she lived in Germany. So So she sort of is in all of my books in a way. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. 
Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, grownups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery. Perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishful podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. That actually was going to be my question of whether or not you went to Italy for this short story, A Blind Corner. Yeah, so... I spent a lot of time in Italy. Um, I have spent, I should say, continue to spend. And I think she's been there 20 years. Mm -hmm. So we don't go every year, but when we, you know, we try to go when we can. And so that wasn't based on any particular incident exactly, but I've spent a lot of time there and I've sort of seen the things that, that tourists bring to the table and that locals bring to the table and how that clash of cultures, even, even in a place like Italy that you think of as, you know, it's it's Europe, right? People, everyone, you know, goes, et cetera. But even, even something as close in a sense as Italy, there can still be that clash of cultures that I think gives rise to interesting plots and themes and And I loved how you explored it through the different perspectives. Oh, good. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. That was a little bit of um, a new thing for me. I'd been reading a lot of Mavis Gallant, who's one of my heroes, and she's just amazing. And she's so crazy good. Like she often will write from the perspective of French, you know, she lived in Paris her whole life. So she'll write from the perspective of, you know, a French girl or so on. And it's so good that you, you just go with it. I I think reading her almost freed me to try something like that. I thought, okay, fine. I'll try it too. It worked. It was great. So glad. Um, I love the piece. So turning to something else you recently wrote or over the summer in the Wall Street Journal, The Age of Emotional Overstatement. Okay, so I love this because who isn't the parent who is trying to post something for their kid's birthday and they think like, okay, I'm going to post these pictures. And is this really the space where I'm going to write like every, every feeling I associate with my child? And why isn't just like the caption... Four exclamation mark. Okay. You know, why do we feel, right. why do we feel this pressure? Can like, tell me, tell, can you tell everyone a bit about this, uh, <laughs> this idea? Yeah, I guess- it's funny. I do think the pendulum has swung back a little bit and I'm seeing more sort of off the cuff, you know, 
HPD, Bobby, and instead of the three paragraph encomiums right. to, to, you know, the perfect child. But I don't know if, I don't know why exactly, but social media just lends itself to this overstatement. And it's funny because after I wrote my piece, of course, my friends were all razzing me like, guess you're not going to heart this. And uh, okay, no, we won't expect a heart from you on this. And of course, it's a, the hearting is a really nice shorthand to be like, thank you so much, you know, or really appreciate this. It's, it's come to stand for so many things that of course it has crept back into my own responses, but I think it's driven by many things. I think it's driven definitely by just pure love for your kid. Um, I think a lot of it slash most of it is probably genuine. I think it may be driven a little bit by pressure. I think it has to do, it's sort of related in my mind to the fact that we video every last damn moment of our kids' lives now. I remember when my when my girls were in grade school, I remember, um, you know, some mom saying, I don't really want to video this, but she wants me to. And it was almost as if you weren't a good mother if you weren't videoing everything. And I think social media can sort of throw down the gauntlet, like, you know, how good a mother are you? If, if you're a really good mother or father, you're, you know, you're really going to go over the top. And, and so, and then of course there are people who decide sort of more what I did is to, you know, I tried it a bit and it just felt so awkward to me because my family's not like that. We're sort of grumpy and withholding and, you know, so <laughs> it just felt incredibly awkward. And so I kind of tried it in this maladroit way once or twice. And then I went back to happy birthday. But yeah, I think there's something that social media just, it, it, you know, these, these emojis are right there. And I also just think it's the times, it's the zeitgeist, right? There's this pressure to be incredibly enthusiastic over the top about everything. Whereas older generations were much more, you know, sort of not calculating, not withholding, more measured, I would say, in their um, emotional expressions. I kept thinking about it because it feels like, you know, it sort of like takes the nuance out of emotion in a way. I had this experience yesterday where my mother texted a picture of like the, the memorial plaque at our synagogue for my grandmother and I hearted it in the text chain. And then I hearted like an Amy Schumer post, you know, it's there. Why, why does that get the same reaction? <laughs> no, exactly. And the sort of pot shot that I took in the article is that sometimes I'll tell my dog sitter that I've decided not to go away that weekend. I'm sorry, I've got to cancel or something like that. And I'll get a red heart. <laughs> you know, and that's a younger generation. So and then, yeah, right, exactly. Versus some like incredibly profound thing where a, a family member has died and you're honoring that and, and you really, you're really moved and it's incredibly emotional for you. So it's, it's, it's funny. And I don't, I don't really see a way back. I don't, I don't yeah. know how it's going to scale back unless some, unless the new iteration of social media maybe won't be, um, there won't be as emoji prone. I'm not sure. Well, because even thinking about like using the certain emojis with an, with an older generation, right? Like if you put a, a heart and it's like a red heart when you're texting with someone who's a little older, like it might mean some, there might be like a more of a love or it might feel a little less appropriate with an, I, the, w the way I'm thinking about this is it reminds me of like maybe 10 years ago talking to a, an not older man, but like one or two generations yeah. above it. And he was saying, you know, I didn't know what I thought selfie meant something kind of untorrid. And, then, <laughs> and now it's like, 
<laughs> selfie is just part of the the mainstream, you know? And so I kind right. of feel that way with the heart also. Like, no, it doesn't mean I love you or it like, yeah. Right. Right. And it's also curious to me that, I mean, maybe it's just because people don't have time to look for the purple heart or the yellow heart or whatever. Yes. And I don't really know what those mean. But it, why is it all the language of passionate romantic love? Yeah. So which is which is kind of funny too. I mean, and 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 the kids. I this is just observing my own teenagers, but the kids are so over the top. I mean, it's you know, as I put it on the piece, it's sort of love you, you're amazing, and and on the one hand, that's probably better than the sort of harsh <laughs> harshness and crit- criticism of the 80s. But on the other hand, you kind of wonder if it all just feels kind of anxiety making and insincere and empty. So I think I'll continue yeah. to contemplate that. <laughs> Please explore this. Like, how do you connect? Because um, I often think, I mean, obviously the children, the adolescent mental health crisis and the way in which our children are growing up, like, how do you link that to the anxiety? Well, I think that just as there are incredibly harsh, critical things that people say online that they wouldn't say to your face. It almost feels like the other side of the coin there is the the over-the-top praise that people post on social media that they probably wouldn't say to your face, but but maybe maybe they would. I don't I don't know. But it just seems sort of really, 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 really knee-jerk. And it could mask a host of actual reactions. You might, let's say you see someone's post and you know, I don't know, they're on the beach somewhere glamorous and your actual reaction is sort of, I don't know, vague jealousy. And then you're posting three red hearts as as your response and love you, honey, and whatever. Then there's that disconnect. And I think, I think straightforward communication is a way to counter anxiety and this, all this BS to be a little bit harsh, but, you know, the, the, the continual kind of crazy uh there's no way that a thousand girls love this person right there's no way that they are all that enthusiastic so then it just sort of seems performative and they're just you know doing it to make sure that she doesn't think that they don't think you know and said and and you're instead of learning you know you go through adolescence you have to take the baton and run with it and instead of learning to communicate with with uh, your peer group in a straightforward way, which is always difficult at best. That's a really tricky, sticky, tough moment. You're, you know, you're doubling down on the fakeness. So it just perpetuates this like Instagram versus reality and, and blurs the lines also. I think so. And then it's a little bit hard to take that and then write a sort of, I don't know, appropriate, serious note to someone that's neither hugely sucking up nor, you know, nor going off on someone in a, in a rage attack. You know, it's, it's really hard. I think this whole country is, is having an issue with that, with just baseline straightforward communication. I mean, you think of, you know, the generation of like George HW Bush, right. The, the greatest gen, those guys weren't, you can't, you can't picture them speaking, writing, or, you know, even writing personally in this way. So you see how, how, how far it, the culture has shifted. Right. Like I grew up being told in a professional email, you don't write, you would love to do something, right? Like I'd love to talk to you as a, as a journalist reaching out to people and saying, I'd really love to speak to you about X. That was, that was a no, no. You would say I'm interested in, or I'd like to, or please consider speaking with me. But now I feel like that's not 
that's not the case anymore. Precisely. And I think, as I also mentioned in the piece, there's all this pressure from above, say, from job applications and college applications and so on that you've got to, it's almost like you have to constantly be doing your passion tap dance yeah, to I love prove that. that you're, you really want this, you know, and it's just not like that. Like that's not, it's not really real life. Even if you do have a talent that you're dedicated to and that, you know, at, at the end of the day, maybe you do love something, but that that's when we speak these things over and over, it just waters it down and, and it, it makes it, you know, it sort of ruins it because you may have put in 20 years of dedication to your instrument or whatever it is. And then, and then suddenly having to, you know, people who do that, I don't think they go around sort of, you know, saying like, Oh yeah, I love, you know, is Yo-Yo Ma going around being like, I love the cello. It's my passion. I mean, no, right. It's sort of a given. (laughs) So is writing your passion? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny because I always wanted to write as a kid. I loved, you know, creative writing in school. And so, and I always wrote stories as a little kid. And it was definitely something I felt compelled to do. At the same time, you know, anyone who's been on this podcast who's finished a book knows that, you know, you write, you write alone in a room with self-doubt and you make your own schedule. So, you know, you're fitting it in where you can, you have to be your own master or so on. So obviously writing's hard. So I'm always a little suspect when someone says they love writing. It's more just, it's sort of a part of who I am. And so I'll always do it and I feel compelled to do it. But it'd be funny, I wouldn't naturally, unless I was applying to college next year, I wouldn't naturally describe it as, you know, it's my passion. It is funny to think about like a 17-year-old kid knowing what their passion is. (laughs) <laughs> right. I mean, so much pressure. It's so much pressure. And I don't think they real, I think they think that they're being kind to the applicants by saying, we want you to shine, but it's actually a form of pressure. If you drill down, it's, it's pressure to what about the kid who's incredibly bright, works incredibly hard, does incredibly well. And I suddenly, Oh, Oh God, I don't have a passion. You know, who am I? You know, it's, it's, it's actually a form of pressure. I agree. Caitlin Macy, what's next? What are you working on right now? I just started a novel. So, um, yeah, I'm excited about it. It's, it's set in the, in sort of pre during and post COVID, but it with, with many flashbacks to the nineties, New York in the nineties, and it's going to be a first person novel. I'm sort of keeping it, not that, not that anyone cares, but I'm sort of keeping it under wraps because I'm at that point where it's almost like you have a bird in the hand and you're afraid if you show it to someone, it'll fly away. So, but I'm working on a novel. I haven't written a first person novel since my first novel, Fundamentals of Play. I'm excited to get back to it. It's, it's, it, it feels really great to be back to the first person. And also it's funny, I've tended to, I've tended to alternate between novel story, novel stories. And and it's when I'm writing one, I can't see writing the other at all. And now that I'm sort of writing a novel, it's a relief to be back into a longer work. How long is the process? You how- mean sort of how long will it take to write the novel from start yeah. to finish? Mm-hmm. It's a really good question. I, it took me a really long time to write my third book, my second novel, partly because of health issues and partly because I had my kids. We moved to London. We moved back. So it just took really forever. And then this book of stories was a lot quicker. So I'm actually hoping to get through a draft of this by the spring. I'm really trying to, you know, keep a pace, not not a lightning fast pace, but just say 500 words a day and just keep marching along because it feels like I kind of have it and I sort of know where I want to go with it. So I'd like it to not take too long. 
then with the lead times in terms of publishing and so on, they seem to need more and more time because because of all the social media and so on and the promoting. So, you know, I, I would love to to finish it and sell it in the spring and then, um, you know, probably be a year, another year of edits and, and all that. So fingers crossed. If I could, I'm, I'm going on record. Ah, well, <laughs> now I have to do it. Thank Well, you know, not to be trite, but all the fingers crossed heart emojis and <laughs> really, <laughs> I am really excited to read. I just love your writing and fundamentals of play was some, uh, a book that I read when I was living in New York years and years okay. ago and just loved it. I, I love it when people mention fundamentals cause it was, you know, it's your, your first child. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, it was a great baby. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed too. So thank you for your support. Caitlin Macy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music.